in and of itself revisions are not uh, a big deal they they are very normal activity historians this is what we do also we always sort of argue back again the established wisdom although what's happening now is that you know this seems uh, very political that a lot of people do believe the moguls occupy too much space in textbooks there may be some truth to it because there is a general north india bias whenever we do indian history in textbooks in a world of emotions telling compelling powerful stories does have value some point in the distant future if somebody genuinely starts believing taj mahal was tejo mahalaya i wouldn't be too surprised the point is to teach kids complexity but to teach them that societies are complex political history is complex things don't always have black and white answers things are not always right and wrong sometimes they 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 mixed up in strange ways Thank you for joining me on Table Talk. Another day, another great guest, another great issue. So I am quickly going to go ahead and uh, chat with author and historian Manu Pillai today, and we are looking at the change in NCERT books, where uh, Mughal rulers and emperors and the history that we have read seems to have completely disappeared. But uh, what it means to be an author and a historian talking of these issues, what it means for our children and the knowledge that they are getting, uh, Manu. I think this is the third round of revisions in the last eight years. Uh, when it comes to our, you know, textbooks and the NCERT books, uh, uh, my first question actually is, uh, you know, is this par for the course? Is this something that you know you historians are used to? Revisions of textbooks is not an unusual uh, activity because you know, as more and more research comes into play, a lot of conclusions that prior generations of historians might have reached, they obviously get revised, which means there must be a reflection. in the academic texts also in what kids in school are learning so to illustrate you know now in a lot of studies on ancient india you know pre uh, let's say harappa and so on that period you find that there's increasingly a lot of genetic evidence and scientific evidence that's being marshaled which didn't exist say 50 years ago even 25 years ago in the in the in the same way that it does today so when i was studying in school our knowledge of the harappan civilization of the indus valley civilization was very much based on what earlier generations had done without these scientific tools whereas today there's a series of books as a series of studies that have shown that there are certain conclusions you can confirm there are certain theoretical aspects that have now been uh, shown to be true other things that may have to be revised which means those need to come into textbooks as well going forward from here so that in and of itself revisions are not uh, a big deal they they are very normal activity historians this is what we do also we always sort of argue back against uh, you know uh, established wisdom and we try and uh, sort of push the argument we try and evolve the field and so on although what's happening now is that you know this seems uh, very political which is why uh, i suppose more and more people seem to uh, suspect that this is not purely an academic exercise that this is linked to perhaps ideological needs or, or plain politics and so on and that also would not be surprising it's not unprecedented in india uh, about 20 22 years ago uh, there was a similar effort and there was a huge controversy back then also now we are seeing something similar as you said these efforts have been happening for some time so if this was happening in isolation that would be one thing but considering that there are politicians actually standing in in political pulpits and campaign stages talking about how we're going to rewrite history and so on and then something that people will understand do we find it a bit suspicious you know coming to the mughals such a huge part of uh, our history at least mine 
and you know uh, growing up learning reading okay so you know for the layman we'll turn around and say chalo okay the mogal gardens have been renamed but what the heck carry on but you know that that's just uh, a side uh, a side bit of it the fact that to turn around and actually obliterate so much of that where would that put our history because you know in that whole pluralistic history that we have grown up knowing you know there's this is it reminds part. me of an old story in the early 19th century the last peshwa who was the head of the maratha confederacy before he was toppled in 1818 bajirao the uh, second there was this one text called the sayadri kandam of the skanda purana which apparently in his final uh, in, in the reign of the final peshwa he tried to go around and destroy copies of this particular text because it used to contain something that was embarrassing to him as a chitpavan brahmin which was you know a story about the origins of the chitpavans and so on and he found that embarrassing because it basically suggested that they were not as grand as they'd become in the peshwa period so he tried to wipe this with this out and that's what you know this whole controversy reminded me of the selective sort of erasure of certain things highlighting of other things and so on ostensibly the argument is that the moguls have been hyped up and that is why this is a kind of course correction whereas i think that it may seem to a lot of people in fact when i did a video recently i, I sensed from some of the responses that a lot of people do believe the moguls occupy too much space in textbooks there may be some truth to it because there is a general north india bias whenever we do indian history in textbooks and that because the moguls conquered and ruled so much of north india automatically there's an overlap there also i think one of the reasons the moguls occupy the kind of space they do is because they were the last imperial formation in india before the british uh, took over and the british raj uh, came into being even the east india company although they were ruling from 1757 1760s itself from in bengal they ruled the subordinates of the mughal emperor the marathas began as rebels against the mughal emperor but by the late uh, by the by the middle and late 18th century they actually became official custodians and protectors of the mughal emperor marji sindhya for example even had a title uh, from the moguls the peshwa was given a title and they were kind of formally speaking still vassals of the moguls all the way south in kerala the maharajas of travancore got their titles endorsed by the mughal emperor so the moguls therefore as cultural icons as a symbolic force in india remained very prominent all the way till the middle of the 19th century and and to put that into into perspective the last mogul emperor uh, he was toppled in 1858 and gandhi ji was born in the next decade so it's not even like the moguls that some five centuries ago it's relatively recent in time now because of that reason we've got more information on them the british were obsessed with them so they've got lots of material they've created we've got persian texts we've got local texts we've got texts created by the subordinate vassals about the moguls we've got buildings that are that are still in front of our eyes if you go to a city like delhi it's packed with mogul monuments and tombs and and the fort and the palaces and so on they were the last prominent indian empire that was around before the british took over they cast a very long shadow over the british empire itself because the british continued to imitate the moguls in terms of ritual so you know i wanted to actually ask you given the background given the space that they have they've held uh and they've held it for so very long you know despite all those changes that have come and gone uh, it's only now that these changes have hit them is it going to be very easy to remove so them a lot of so i'm actually split on this because there are people who say oh you know you can scrape them out of the textbooks but you can never take them out of our imagination and so on uh that i think uh, is a bit too optimistic because you know once textbooks start getting rewritten it's not like everybody in our country has some voracious appetite for history to start with most people including the ones who were chattering on twitter about how awful the moguls were 
their chief exposure to the moguls is purely what they read in school and then what they've imagined since uh, you know by reading newspapers or watching films and so on so once you take something like textbooks and then meddle around and, and sort of mess around with them there is a real risk that things that deserve a certain amount of attention get deflated equally it's it's also possible that certain things that supply certain ideological uh, support systems etc might end up being amplified beyond any kind of reason so there's always mischief in that however that said we still have phenomenal monuments we still have the moguls alive in a lot of the food we eat in north india a lot of the clothes that people wear uh, you know at every wedding all these the kind of clothes that are that are worn both by men and women there are strong influences of persianate culture in general but also the moguls from later periods a city like delhi it's very difficult to walk 2 uh, kilometers without running into something or the other that's connected whether it's the gardens whether it's on square little tomblets not even the big tombs but the smaller ones uh, and so on so it's not that easy to erase it in a physical sense but i think people can be villainized historical figures can be marginalized and the importance of the moguls in our broader consciousness can certainly be reduced which is i think what the aim really is it it is that in this climate and in our times there is a conscious desire for hindu heroes you know people want hindu heroes people feel like specifically muslim figures have got too much uh, space in textbooks and therefore that needs to be rectified and corrected so i think there's there is some risk that you know this kind of meddling uh, might end up having some very real term consequences but all the same uh, i don't think i'm too pessimistic either because there's a very strong material evidence and there's still a kind of living cultural resonance that continues in our own times and in our own lives and in our food and so on what about misappropriation you know it, it, one thing is to you know just take it out the other thing is to misappropriate taj mahal hamara tha you know that kind of narrative how does that and and there are enough yeah i think it's funny how many people these they seem to believe this whole tejo mahalaya uh, theory that this used to be a temple called tejo mahalaya and which is now and then shahjan seized it and turned it into mumtaz's grave and that's how it became the taj mahal there's a similar story for the qutub minar also where they say that this is uh, what is it something stumb and it's not actually it wasn't actually built by like slaves in then and so on i think see these stories will fly to a certain extent the the real fear is that when this kind of belief system starts penetrating academic spaces also when for example scholars start buying into this and you have like uh, very serious people endorsing or even uh, willing to let this kind of uh, stuff pass i think that's where the risk really uh, lies misappropriation although in india we do have a habit of reclaiming things by telling powerful stories uh, you know back in the day also forget hindu versus muslim we have so many especially in south india we have so many sites that used to be jain temples buddhist temples which were then later once those religions declined they were appropriated by what you know what we would now call hinduism but in those days used to be a much more complex mixed up set of uh, beliefs and practices it was appropriated by them and turned into temples so you'd have various stories that come up where i come from in kerala we have a temple nearby which is about 1200 years old but what's interesting is that the local and there's an inscription that says it's 1200 years old the local palapuranas however say oh this was built in this particular yuga long before the kali yuga and so on which gives it a a history of 4000 5000 years and yet it was originally a buddhist place of worship because uh, the image of the buddha was found buried in a field uh, near the temple about 100 years ago so it's interesting how places have been occupied this way in the past it's interesting how 
places and sites and sometimes legends and stories even have been reclaimed and appropriated i mean the, the whole business of the buddha becoming an avatar of vishnu is also partly taking him and then putting him into uh, a world view that you prefer rather than taking him with the world view that he actually introduced so there's that kind of thing is it it's happened in the past in india so i wouldn't again play it down it sounds foolish to us but frankly in in the world in a world of emotions and so on as opposed to the world of dry facts and academic analysis in a world of emotions telling compelling powerful stories does have value and does have a lot of power and that i think uh, could mean that at some point in the distant future if somebody genuinely starts believing taj mahal was tejo mahalaya uh, you know i i wouldn't be too surprised and the thing is there's always a small grain of truth in these things right which is that the plot that on which the taj mahal stands did belong to a rajput raja who had his own private sort of puja room or whatever in that in that particular place it was from that rajput raja i think that shahjahan purchased that property for which the rajput was given other property and compensation and so on and then the taj mahal was built so i think there is a grain of truth in that this the plot was originally a hindu's property before the taj mahal was built there which is what some people used to construct a longer genealogy and saying that the taj mahal itself came from rajput times or that it had it had hindu uh, you know builders and creators and so on so again i'm i'm i wouldn't play it down too much a lot of this seems stupid but stupidity does fly stupidity does acquire a life of its own and and it does have the capacity to alter reality itself is there some sort of a worry now that you know with the, the kind of changes that have been made that it's the smaller stories the stories of women also in the mughal era that are going to get impacted i mean women's yes. stories have already been difficult to bring up in the first place uh if you look at the first generation of indian historians who worked on the moguls like jadunath sarkar and so on the women weren't such a big part of their historical analysis they weren't necessarily seen as worthy historical figures it's much later generations really in the last 30 40 years uh only who've actually brought it up uh and started focusing on these women as political actors and not just as domestic beings locked up in the harem doing uh, nothing in particular other than sort of perfuming themselves and, and sitting around and lounging about waiting for the sultan or the or the mughal emperor to arrive so there is uh, already so telling their stories already has been a bit of an uphill challenge for a lot of scholars and i think you're right therefore there is a risk that a lot of these things will recede in this black and white moguls or villains and everybody else for these pious wonderful souls kind of argument that is there uh, so it, it is possible that they might uh, fall victim to it also the women sometimes tend to complicate some of these black and white narratives right so even the the rajput wives that the mughal emperors took it wasn't like these were docile women or weak women and so on yes they were originally married to i mean so called jodabai whose actual title was maryam of zamani she was married to akbar very much as part of a political alliance but she was a political force in her own right you know by the time her son emperor jahangir was in power she had a huge uh, amount of influence in the mughal court she had a high cavalry rank she had a huge economic portfolio she used to trade in different parts of the world uh, you know she had she was she had all these uh, charitable projects that she was overseeing you have others like gulbadan begum who i think was akbar's aunt uh, this particular begum goes on the hajj for 6 7 years she disappears from mughal india goes all the way to arabia just a band of women of course with soldiers and protectors but led chiefly by this aunt of the emperor she negotiates negotiates with the portuguese they refuse to let her go she stranded for a whole year she ends up actually leaving after that fascinating adventure led by a woman so none of these women were docile figures none of these women were just sitting around these were interesting people interesting stories and i think some of that might indeed be obscured 
in this uh, simplistic narrative that uh, increasingly is peddled these days. It's quite simplistic, isn't it? I mean, now you've come across lots of people who are, uh, you know, going about saying, oh, we didn't study about the Chola Empire, or we didn't study about this empire. Why didn't we only study about the Mughals? A lot of people, because their exposure to history firstly ended in class 10 or whatever, and after that they haven't bothered to, to pick up anything to do with history. Firstly, you're relying on your memory of what you studied then. Secondly, once 20 people start saying that, oh, we only studied the Mughals, we didn't study anything else, you start believing it, right? Because if I think back about the things I studied, I certainly studied Vijayanagara, I certainly studied the Cholas. We did hear about how the Cholas went out into Southeast Asia with their ships and so on. Again, they may not necessarily have had chapters and chapters, for example, like the Mughals did. Although the Mughals also, in my textbooks, did not necessarily dominate large chunks either. There was usually a section allocated to Akbar as this exemplar of Hindu-Muslim unity and so on. And then there was a section associated with Aurangzeb. But the Aurangzeb section was also dominated by the Marathas, by the rise of Shivaji and so on. So it's not as if somehow you have all the others cramped into 20 pages and the Mughals have the remaining 80 pages. The Mughals do have a sizable chunk, but that's also because they come from relatively, they come from times that are closer to our goal. Therefore, we have got more information. To, to expect similar kind of data on the Cholas to fill that kind of space or to compete with the Mughals in terms of how much space is allocated is difficult because we don't have that kind of information on the Cholas. What we have are, of course, largely inscriptional uh, material. We've got buildings, we've got some Sanskrit works and so on, but that's relatively limited compared to the wealth of material that the Mughals have left. Secondly, because the Mughals were an Islamic uh, dynasty, they were recognized in the wider Islamic world, which means the corpus of evidence that we can rely on is not just in India. It exists in Portugal, it exists in the Ottoman Empire, it exists in the Persian Empire. There are links between all of these. Uh, Nur Jahan was Persian. You know, uh, it's the same Persian families. One branch would come off to the Mughals, one branch would come to the Deccan Sultanates in South India. And then these families would intermarry with these royal families here and get mixed up and so on. So there are lots of linkages and networks that also make it possible to tell the Mughal story in a greater, richer kind of style. And finally, we study the Mughals a lot more simply because their impact on our world as it is today, simply because they were so close to us in time, is higher. Whereas the Cholas lived almost like uh, 800, 900 years ago. They collapsed and, and dissolved by the, by the 13th century. Yes, we have the temples and certain aspects are alive, but not in the same way. So they didn't necessarily, so the British didn't in, inherit power or take over power from the Cholas. They took it from the Mughals. That itself creates a lopsidedness in why we end up studying the Mughals more and the Cholas less. Of course, there is every reason to study more about the Cholas as much as we can. There's every reason to highlight uh, stories from the, the kind of margins of Indian history. And there are plenty. As I said, there's a geographical bias. Uh, I don't know why nobody complains about how we don't study anything about the Northeast. That's also a very valid point because we barely study anything about the Northeast. We, little, we learn very little about ancient Kashmir or medieval Kashmir even. Uh, South India again gets a kind of step motherly treatment. So yes, there are valid criticisms to be made. But the answer isn't necessarily to erase the Mughals and then try and play up others. It's to create richer textbooks, it's to make more interesting texts. It's to come up with new creative ways of teaching history and to amalgamate all this in reasonable proportions as is necessary. But that requires, I think, to start with a sincerity and a, and a kind of loyalty to the discipline itself as opposed to a desire to turn history 
into a kind of instrument for other kind other ideological or political battles if that's the game we are playing no textbook is ever going to be perfect that i don't think any indian government has actually been interested in history for its own sake everybody has been interested in history as it supports politics as it supports our narrative as a post colonial nation as it sort of bolsters our present not necessarily uh, for history in its own right as in this so you know I, when we are targeting young minds the children you know the ncert books when books become a playground barely any kids seem to be interested in history at that age because it's taught badly enough to start with the textbooks aren't particularly inspiring to start with i think uh, and the textbooks are so bad that in some ways we should perhaps be happy that the moguls occupy most of it because otherwise everything else could be turned into a boring uh, a, a boring account of what happened in the past in five dates and so on so i think there's that but i think yeah i think kids will be poorer for it their comprehension of of how our country emerged in its current shape in its current form will be skewed our understanding of political history will be skewed uh, you know even if we shut our eyes and think of india and we visualize the map of india a lot of the the creation of this map is linked to the british but also to the moguls because it, it's partly in these periods that the kind of political unity we have today was forged before which it was almost 2000 years ago in in ashoka's time that we had that kind of that kind of unity and political unity so even in understanding our political history it's extremely important to uh, speak about the moguls so we can talk about them critically uh, we can certainly interrogate them we can certainly discuss the moguls without roasting the romantic uh you know ideas about how they were wonderful and everybody seemed to get along in that time and then india was the richest there's this whole thing right like india was the richest nation in the world in during mughal rule it's a bit of an exaggeration because the ruling classes were definitely very rich but most indians were not very rich that's just how it is but again that's not specific to the moguls it's specific to kingship as an institution the point is to teach kids complexity the point is to not give kids a simplistic fair of this happened this happened this happened history lesson done but to teach them that societies are complex political history is complex things don't always have black and white answers things are not always right and wrong sometimes they 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 mixed up in strange ways historical figures you take even a mogul emperor like akbar who supposed to be the good mogul emperor in quotes he also had so called negative shades he also had so called positive shades he was also an eccentric interesting human being if you look at him purely from that perspective but it's the combination of all this that makes him a person right and i think that complexity needs to be communicated to kids instead of turning history into a political football that will just bore them even more than they are already with our existing day. so you know you're one of my favorite storytellers and i love the episodes and the anecdotes you pick up so there's anything that that comes from mogul history that oh, well, you no, know and you think we <laughs> no no i'm not a, i'm not an expert on the mogul so the call forward who uh, specifically studies the moguls for it i think you know one one character who interests me very much is babur the first mogul emperor because he's seen as the invader right like this is the guy who first invaded india and he was an invader so even if the later moguls settled down babur definitely came here as an invader he conquered from local hindu rajas though of course the main person he defeated wasn't a hindu it was ibrahim lodi of the lodi dynasty in delhi uh, so babur was an invader and, and therefore people have this very ferocious idea of babur as some kind of you know villainous figure with just missing horns and so on but if you actually read steven dale's biography of babur for example the image you get in your mind is of a very confused young man deprived of his patrimony in, in fargana where he was from uh, at a relatively young age he saw his sister being married to one of his own tormentors uh, at one point he was surrounded barely by five or six friends and sleeping on the sleeping rough on the on a hillside uh, he had to actually go and woo the persian shah 
briefly pretending he had become a Shia Muslim in order to win support, and then he comes back to becoming a Sunni. Even his sensational defeat of the Rajputs, he actually thought he was going to lose because he he had been he, his troops had suffered several defeats and reversals by then, and that's when he famously throws off the, the the liquor jars and smashes all of that and says, "Now I will not drink anymore, and this is going to be a holy war," and so on. This whole holy war in his in his case wasn't necessarily because he came here, saw Hindus, and said, "I hate Hindus." It was because he had suffered so many defeats that the only thing that would build up morale for his army was finally invoking God and and falling back on religion because nothing else would would motivate them to to this fight because they'd already suffered so many losses. He hated the climate. He didn't actually like living here. Uh, a lot of his governors, a lot of his supporters, ended up going back to Afghanistan and beyond because they couldn't stand uh, living in India. So. If you just look at some of their lives, you will discover that actually these were deeply conflicted uh, figures. We may now see Babur as this tyrannical figure who came from outside and conquered this place as if he had a set plan from the beginning. But if you actually scrape beneath the surface and surface and investigate these figures, you discover that so much was luck, so much was chance, so much was unplanned, and so much just happened. And 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 this is true of all empires and all kings, even the British Empire. A lot of it was. It, it surprised the British themselves sometimes how easily they won certain battles. Uh, even even something like the the Battle of Plassey, Clive wasn't sure till the previous night whether he should go ahead or not with it because he genuinely thought he would end up losing. Uh, and yet that's not what happened. So th- those surprises are what, in some ways, make history fascinating. That's what makes Mughal history fascinating. But it, it's what makes all history fascinating. That we think that these guys somehow, in a linear way, went from step one to step two. But no, just as our lives, our choices are messy. Just as we begin in point A and then end up at different points that we never even imagined we'd reach, these guys also began in in certain places, but ended up in places that were not entirely reached by design. But a lot of it was reached simply by accident and luck. That aspect, I think, fascinates me in general and comes across very well in Barber's life. History is fascinating. What is it like mm-hmm. being a historian well, in these times? <laughs> being a historian is always slightly exhausting in the sense that you know there's a lot of reading to be done, a lot of uh, research can can exact its pound of flesh. Uh, it can be a very isolating experience. I'm I'm in the process of of finishing up a book. It'll take me several more months, but I I just finished a chapter and I've been breaking my head uh, on it for the last five or six weeks. Uh, and and reading through reams and reams of Marathi text and some relatively archaic Marathi. Uh, and and I I finished one draft last week and I gave myself this entire week just to while my time away and not look at the manuscript, not look at the book, just to relax. Of course, I ended up doing other kinds of writing. So those stresses, of course, continue as as part of professional work in general. But in these times, yes, I think there's a general belief lots of people have that anybody can just come and express an opinion on history and be taken seriously. which i find quite comical it's almost like me deciding tomorrow that i'm going to open up the bonnet of my car and just look at some kind of like online youtube manual and start tinkering with uh, the car itself i'm not an expert and yet i would never have the confidence to go and start tinkering with the engine of my car and yet with history somehow everybody thinks it's about opinion rather than you know the actual analysis and the facts uh, historians are also trained people it's not like we just wake up in the morning and we decide to do history as a hobby there's training we keep get, getting better with time we keep getting better with experience uh, our books therefore get, get, keep getting more and more robust and sound because of that there's a lot of effort that goes into training as historians as well and that i think is sometimes underestimated by people 
then of course there's the political uh, mudslinging and so on you write something some party doesn't like it and all of their trolls will come and attack you you write something else another party in a different part of india won't like it they'll come and attack you so it's a but that's again i wouldn't complain too much it's part of the the process these days especially if you're writing for larger audiences inevitably there will be more opinions to deal with if i if i were writing just for a seminar circuit i would only have to deal with the 20 people in the seminar but if i'm writing for a larger audience then i am going to have to put up with uh, comments that come comments that are not always very enlightened uh, comments that are sometimes fairly presumptuous sometimes on twitter for example you you answer somebody they'll ask a question you answer and then a third person will come and saying where is the proof and i'll be like no this particular text no give me the exact sentence and verse and I'm like, why should i do this for you it costs me money to do my research why should i come and freely give you all this information and tell you which exact verse to find this in and, and who exactly are you why am i going to respond to a nameless uh, figure on twitter and 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 try and go through all my sources trying to find and assuage them that oh this is really genuinely history so there are some irritants like that but again it still remains a joy it still remains a fascinating world for all the nonsense that happens in its name for all the politicking that's done around history it still never ceases to surprise me it still never ceases to fascinate me and frankly if you go into history with an open mind as opposed to having prejudgments and preconceived ideas you will find that it's a very enriching field and i think that is why i keep at it and that's why i enjoy what i'm doing at the end of the day then good bad uncomfortable history is still history for a country to progress all kinds of history needs to go together needs to go forward we need to add more to that repertoire instead of deleting and sanitizing manupil i thank you so much for joining me for this episode and i hope to have more conversations with you again in the future but for now thank you for joining me and i hope you guys enjoyed this episode don't forget to like and subscribe to our and i'll see you again soon thank you for joining goodbye